Conversations with the Mind podcast, where we explore consciousness through conversations with interesting people. Our mission is to engage the collective mind piece by piece to bring greater clarity of mind to our listeners locally and across the planet, and to contribute to broaden the shared experiential knowledge and wisdom of existence.
I love that holiday. It's awesome. It's also my birthday. So I'm turning 36. I don't feel like I'm 36. I don't know what 36 is supposed to feel like. But, um, yeah, this is going to be a fun show, guys. Welcome back. Uh, You're in the right place if you're here for Conversations with the Mind. I know that's why I'm here. And I want to say thanks to all the listeners for your listenership. Uh, Continues to grow. Um, Please continue to like and share all of our podcasts on your social media. It really helps us get the word out. Um, And I think it also helps, too, if uh, you can like or share our posts or you can, like, copy the link into your own um, social media. And I don't know, that has some different kind of algorithm that helps. But please like and share if you do like it. If you find any value in this podcast at all, please consider giving a donation. There should be a link at the bottom of whatever podcast app you're listening to. Even a dollar is a great contribution, guys. It all goes back into the podcast. I don't take anything from this uh, show financially at all. If anything, I've put uh, a lot of uh, finances into this show, and I do it for you guys. Um, And I do it for myself in a lot of ways, too, just because I get so much from doing this. Um, and I hope that the messages that I'm bringing to the airwaves that I'm bringing to the show, the people and the perspectives that I'm bringing are impacting your life in positive ways. If that's happening at all, please consider giving maybe a dollar, uh, donate to the podcast. You can also support us by going to the YouTube page. Go check that out. There's lots of cool videos on there. Um, if you find any great videos that relate to this content, Send it to me, guys. I will put it on the YouTube page in whatever um, appropriate playlist folder I find for it. Um, But I love to keep adding to that library. And that way you guys can play an active role in contributing to this show as well. So please, please, please give um, your time, give your energy, uh, give your attention to these conversations that you're having with yourself and the conversations that you're having in your communities and your families. Um, and I don't know, guys, this is, this is, I don't have any answers. That's why I'm bringing this show to the, to the airwaves is, you know, I'm, I'm seeking, I'm seeking your perspectives too. So think about it, contribute, um, participate. Okay. This is more of a participatory, life this is a participatory podcast um let's go out and give these things a try all right now a word for our, from our sponsor and then we'll move right along conversations with the mind podcast is sponsored as always by mindops.com that's m-i-n-d hyphen OPS.com. Come check us out. We're an eclectic counseling company providing both mental health and mental performance services to individuals, small and large groups, teams, businesses, and military individuals through face-to-face sessions or at a distance using phone or confidential video chat apps. We bring a unique Buddhist Western lens and specialize in general psychotherapy for all mental difficulties sport and performance psychology for performance enhancement through mental training, addiction counseling for any maladaptive or destructive habits, and psychedelic integration therapy to make the most from your visionary medicine work. We're available as well for corporate workshops to address the needs of your employees' wellness. 
Thank you for listening to the show, and please go check us out, mindops.com and the MindOps YouTube page. All right, today's good news story, hoping to spread some joy and cheer your way and help you smile a little bit more today, comes from the Good News Network. You can find this story at thegoodnewsnetwork.org. <clears throat> Excuse me. The title of the article today reads, Microsoft Japan recently gave their employees a four-day work week and productivity skyrocketed by 40%. Now, this has been something that I've been hearing uh, more and more in the news and a lot more people talking about it, um, talking about the four-day work week and uh, research that has been coming out showing that uh, four-day work weeks uh, are actually uh, better in a lot of ways, including productivity, um, health impacts, um, impacts on the environment, things like that. Um, this article uh, adds to that body of research that's already growing, and it um, kind of puts a spotlight on Microsoft, the company, over in their Japan uh, offices in which they they allowed people to just take Fridays off without a decrease in pay. And what they found was that 40% um, or the productivity uh, skyrocketed by 40% compared to the same time period from the previous year. Um, so they compared it across, uh, you know, what, what would be sort of like a little more control to their studies. They did it during the same time of year, same, uh, same anticipated business, uh, level of business during that time of year, things like that to kind of control those variables. Um, let's see. They say, furthermore, the company saved money by reducing their operational costs. The building consumed 23% less electricity, and the workforce reduced their paper consumption by almost 60%. Um, 92% of the employees said they prefer, preferred a shorter work week. And um, let's see. I don't know if they're, if they're planning on um, keeping it um, keeping it long-term, but like I said, there's been a lot of emerging research in this area about the four-day work week. I've seen a lot of changes, too, recently um, with public school systems, larger, uh, later start times for schools and how that can improve brain functionality and uh, what kids get out of school and what they can retain from school. I think these studies uh, in relation to shorter work weeks, I mean, who wouldn't love having uh, three days off a week instead of two? There's a lot of other countries all over the world that already institute this type of model or at least reduce the work week down to 35, uh, 30, even less hours a week. And they find uh, correlative, correlative um, outcomes because of this, um, things like uh, decreased stress, um, increased Increased well-being, uh, decreased number of sick days used, uh, increases in productivity, much like this says, um, greater um, subjective uh, reported like rested states. So people are feeling good. They're feeling more connected. Um, it seems more manageable, and they're producing more of a shorter work week. So pretty interesting article. I think it's good news that we put more light on these types of things. And the more that we can talk about them and actually look at the research and see uh, if it's valid and spread that uh, that good 
outcome news if it is valid research and also uh, looking through the research, making sure that it is valid. And if it's not, then making sure that the uh, misinformation is not spread. I think both are essential components and really important. So anyway, that's today's good news story. Hopefully it made you feel all warm and fuzzy inside about the potential for a future. Can you imagine only having to go to work four days a week? Uh, right now, I think I'm working close to seven days a week with multiple positions, as many of us are. Um, anyway, okay, so I'm thinking, so usually this is the part of the podcast where I do uh, what I call conversation with my mind, and I kind of let you into what I've been thinking about recently in my life. And actually, right before I did this, it popped in my head, maybe I might want to change that conversation with my mind um, the name of this section, and instead just uh, name it a piece of my mind. So I want to give you a piece of my mind today. <clears throat> and it kind of plays in with the same idea. So, um, so let, me, let me put some context here. I was reading some, some uh, peer-reviewed research recently talking about what is termed the colonization of research in the West. <clears throat> and excuse me. Um, if you think about the words that make up that phrase, colonization, okay, so taking over uh, an area of some sort, it doesn't necessarily have to be physical space or physical land, but taking over some sort of area or space um, in order to instill your own value systems in the existing structures uh, to help perpetuate your ideas, okay? That's what colonialism has been historically. Uh, if you look at physical colonialism with, you know, England and Europe trying to colonize, um, you know, the East and India and Australia and all sorts of places all over the world, the U.S. and our current policies in uh, not direct colonialism but indirect in that we have, you know, forward operating bases in most countries in the world and the impact that we have through Western capitalism and U.S.-driven ideals and things like that is helping um, – or I should say not helping, uh, but it is leading towards colonialization of indigenous cultures and of um, different variances in uh, cultures. And so these articles I've been reading have been talking about specifically the, the colonization of research in the West. And it's so interesting because... Being a white male, um, that's definitely been one of my blind spots. You know, I wasn't taught growing up to necessarily uh, consider my privilege as a white person or what my white skin might mean in in relation to others and in the context of uh, achievement and things like that. You know, I was always internally driven and always felt like I was a high achiever in school and a high achiever in sports and always pushing myself to be my very best. And growing up, I had always thought, well, it was, it was those efforts. It was because of my determination and my mental toughness and the things that I overcame and did and achieved. It was that, that, um, kind of made me stand out in school and, and had, you know, teachers and parents and things, uh, saying they're proud of me and congratulating me and, you know, giving me those accolades that I wanted. But I had always thought like, okay, this, this value that these people are giving me, uh, which I like, um, 
has been derived based solely off of my efforts and my um, the the energy and determination I put into it. I never once that whole time considered that maybe it was my whiteness or my maleness that, or maybe a combination of both, being a white male and a middle class uh, family or or um, you know something like that. That that it was that sort of dynamic that was also influencing how other people treated me, whether it be my mentors or my teachers or, um, you know, other parents or, or society in general, you know, it was not something I really considered that much. And, and so it's been a blind spot for me and it's not my fault. Um, I think it's a blind spot for a lot of us because, um, you know, I was raised in a system that, uh, has conditioned me to think a certain way and and um, pursue relationships in a certain way and think about hierarchy in a certain way and think about culture in a certain way and largely a lot of my own uh, education and conditioning has come from people like me, other white people. I've grown up mostly in Colorado and it's not that diverse here. Um, you know, these days I seek out opportunity to learn from people from all over the world, all of over um, different nationalities and indigenous cultures and across different spectrums and scales of t- people and um, and experience, and I, I value that so much because I understand that I have this blind spot that uh, is not necessarily my fault, but that leaves me blinded to certain inequalities, leaves me blinded to certain um, power structures that uh, I may not know I'm contributing in, but simply by uh, going about the way that I've always been taught. Um, am somehow contributing to, you know, injustice and misopportunity for others. So it's something I'm trying to push myself um, to, to understand a little bit more. My wife is reading a book called White Fragility, and I hope to read it after her. Um, it's about um, sort of this def- this aspect of defensiveness that comes up when, uh, you know, when people like myself, when white people are approached and... Um, you know, kind of put on the spot and and, and um, shown really what you know how they're contributing to continuing racism, uh, whether they know it or not. And there's this defensiveness that comes up, and I know it came up for me when I first heard the the concept, and I was like, "Well, what? Not all white researchers are bad, and all these things." And these feelings came up in me, um, where I was like, "I don't know why I should feel guilty for something that I didn't intentionally do." Um, but I have, you know, I'm, I'm learning, I have to step past that and get past that. And, um, you know, it's good that I feel that way because that's how others who have been oppressed have felt, uh, on the spot and, um, you know, criticized and ridiculed and things like that. And so it's an area that I'm pushing myself to grow and it also relates really strongly, um, you know, to the efforts. So I'm talking about the colonization of research. Some of these articles I was reading were calling for what's called the decolonization of research. So that is making sure that we uh, are very aware and that we go into experimentation in science and, uh, you know, uh, social interactions with considerations um, 
that number one, we may not have all the answers, uh, and we certainly don't, and that our perspective is only but one of many perspectives. Um, but we also need to know that there is this underlying historical influence that permeates everybody if you're part of this society and that that needs to be named and accounted for and factored into whatever discussion or um, uh, debate is going on just to kind of level the playing field um, and get that out of the way. So that's what I've been thinking about. That's a little bit of peace of my mind. Um, hope you guys uh, enjoyed that and can play around with it. If it's something you're interested in, it's definitely been in the news lately. Try not to focus too much on the, uh, you know, the, the clickbaity type stories. Try and focus more on, um, you know, legitimate, uh, deep conversations around some of these issues, um, usually much deeper than, uh, you know, what you'll see on Facebook and, and Twitter in these very short diatribes of, uh, of people's personal opinions. Um, I would get more into, you know, the, the philosophical literature on this, uh, maybe even look into, um, <clears throat> the, the history of your own cultures and where they come from. We have, we all have violence in our cultures. We all have been oppressors in our histories and our cultural histories. We've all been oppressed in our histories and cultures. And it's important that we all know about those things, at least within our own lineages so that we can, um, you know, look to understand where other people are coming from and have more compassion for, for those that might be more negatively impacted by the social systems around us and the powers that be and the oppression and all that stuff. So that's a piece of my mind today. All right, today's guest, very special guest, and he's a return guest. He was last on the show in episode number 25. Uh, his name is Michael Sullivan. Uh, we like to call him Sully. And he was my first ever MMA coach. Uh, I trained under him for a long time, uh, trained MMA and Sambo under him for, I don't know, maybe five years uh, back when his organization was called Fusebox uh, down, down in the Broomfield, um, Colorado area. And he's definitely been a mentor of mine. Um, he's been a role model of mine for uh, what it means to be a man and what it means to uh, be a warrior um, among men. And, you know, as, as some of the listeners know, I, I don't have much connection with my father um, and not much connection with the stepfathers I had growing up. So I was always looking for that father figure to kind of teach and model to me what, what life was supposed to be like. And Sully was definitely one of those people. Uh, my coaches in my life are the, are some of the most influential people who have taught me some of the best life lessons I've learned. Um, so yeah, he was that for me as well. And he is uh, a leader, you know, among uh, the Colorado Sambo community in general. So Sambo isn't huge in Colorado. It's bigger in other parts of the country and other parts of the world. But here in Colorado, um, Sully has been um, a leader in that uh, specific community and then also a leader uh, bleeding over into areas of uh, MMA and um, submission grappling and other uh, martial arts type competitions. Um, I would describe him as a genuine pursuer of knowledge. Uh, he's very 
philosophically minded and um, he educates himself well on history and not just popular history, but history that is often hidden, um, hidden by the victors. Uh, you know, we know that the victors write history and sometimes, uh, you know, we need to dig a little bit deeper to find what the truth is. And Sully's always, to me, uh, been one of those type of people that likes to go digging for that, that missing information. So great guy to listen to. Um, you know, we disagree on some things, but um, that's all well and good too. Um, anyway, if you guys want to reach out to Sully, uh, you can find him at fusebox.com. That's F-U-S-B-O-X-E.com. Um, he owns and operates a uh, martial arts studio in the uh, Westminster area, and it's called Sambo One, uh, like the number one. And... Um, Let's see. You can reach him. He he told me it's fine uh, to give out his email address. I'll also put this information in the description as well. Uh, you can reach out to him through email at wooddummy2000 at yahoo.com. That's wood, W-O-O-D-D-U-M-M-Y-2000 at yahoo.com. So here we go, folks. Hope you enjoy the show. It's a great one. Challenge yourself. This one's going to be a little rough. All right, folks. Welcome back to Conversations with the Mind for episode 60. I'm your host, as always, Shane Lamaster. And today we're here with very special uh, guest and returning guest, Michael Sullivan. How are you, sir? Good, good guys. Thank you. Um, so you were on the show last. Uh, I, was, I was actually looking it up right before we did this show. And um, you were episode 25. And um, so, spent come a long way uh, in in about a year and some uh, some extra time and and I've interviewed quite a few people and I always like coming back to some of the most interesting guests that some of my listeners have commented on and you are one of those for sure and uh, specifically like um, I wanted to have you on the show today because I've been learning a lot about. Um, different perspectives on uh, ethnic and cultural identity in my classes, in uh, my social work PhD. And you've always been somebody who um, I feel has been uh, quite opinionated on those issues and uh, able to, you know, back up a lot of what you say with historical evidence. And that's one of my favorite, one of my favorite reasons why I like talking to you is because you always you always share so much history with me that really informs the information that I know about. So I really wanted to have you on today to, to provide some perspective uh, for me and for anyone out there who might be interested in this topic as well. Um, but yeah, just, you know, kicking it off with ethnic and cultural identity. Like what does that mean within um, the U S culture? And then what does it mean maybe on a broader sense, like among all humanity? Um, hey Shane, so I'm going to ask you if you could, if you can give me, uh, kind of, if we can narrow it down a little bit and, and give me a, an ethnic, an example uh, of what you're looking for in this question. So, so I don't spin off topic. Sure. Uh, well it is, you're right. It's a huge topic, but, um, mostly, um, what I'm reading about is, um, things like oppression and injustices among different racial classes 
and spe you know specifically what what I've been reading that's been really interesting as I look into conducting my own research for my dissertation is I'm reading articles right now that are deconstructing um, almost this uh, white middle class uh, you know patriarchy that is dominated um, Western U.S. academic research and you know, it's kind of deconstructing that, not not necessarily saying that uh, you know white man is a bad is a bad influence. I mean, there's a lot of innovation there, but but that more um, there's definitely racial inequalities, and that um, you know racial different racial classes need to be represented on more equal basis. And then we see all sorts of racial division bullcrap all over the media all the time, trying to draw our attention away from you know really important issues or maybe derailing us from what we should be focusing on, um, you know, equity and equality and things like that. So, yeah, I hope that narrowed it down a little bit. Yeah, it, it does. And I, I guess my, this would be an opinion piece because I can't speak for fact of anything. Oh, yeah. Neither um, are experts on it. Right. Um, I have an opinion that's very, it's very difficult to, to say out loud in today's environment. Um, so the, as far as inequality goes, this all always points back to um, Indo-European, uh, Northern European uh, males or females here in the U.S. And that seems to be um, like the U.S. is the only place that this injustice happens and where UFOs land. And it's it's a little bit aggravating to me um, to be told that I'm the group that's doing this when I know a bunch of people. Um, I know a lot of people and I don't know anybody that wakes up on a Tuesday with this plan of putting somebody down. Um, there is of course, some people don't like other people for for whatever the, their their beliefs, their religion, their their color. There's you're, you're going to run into people that are simple that way. And I don't know how to pass a law saying that you can't be an asshole. And those people tend to isolate themselves pretty quickly because I don't think the average uh, intelligent person is really interested in getting tied up in this mess. So my belief, what is happening is when you take, if you take black Americans, for example, um, I don't think that they're dumb and I don't think they need our help. And that's an unpopular belief inside of the binary white guilt society. And it's been suggested that black Americans can't, get driver licenses on their own. They can't get voting cards on their own. They can't, they can't get to the voting polls on their own. And this is obviously nonsense. And I look, I think like most Americans do directly at them as equals. I run across plenty of black people that are better at math than I am. And so uh, when I'm, when I'm working on something that requires math, I'll, I'll lean to the person that's the best in the room. But when all of these people get up in the morning and go to work and have their J and they come home and they feed their kids. Uh, 
the fact that millions upon millions of them had a normal day and have good credit and um, have a mortgage and a house and a business, that's not making the news. It's, it's the one or two guys that's making the news. And it's, and it's the heavy negative experience ones. And so it leads people to believe that this is just widespread, massive, and everywhere. And I don't, from my opinion, I don't believe many Americans, since that's what I can talk to, of any ethnicity or, or racial spectrum really care to get involved in what's going on out there in the savior complex a lot of white people have thinking that they're going to be able to save something by being outraged or being emotional. I, I just don't think it's, I don't think it's beneficial. My personal opinion is uh, in my generation may have had something to do with this. Uh, maybe not. I believe it was largely my mother's generation that took us from a place where oppression was systemic. It was serious. And there were signs up saying that, people couldn't go in certain places and that generation eradicated it. Nobody told them they had to, nobody, nobody went to white people that day and said, you had to do this. You have to mellow out. Uh, they had to do it themselves. And so whatever motivated them to do it themselves back in the late mid and late sixties and seventies was, was a huge accomplishment since it was self-policing in nature. And, um, they raised my generation and I, I don't see people, um, racially in, in a negative light. I, I, I get confused on what people want. Sometimes they want to be something special, but at the same time, don't notice me. Um, I, I'll see people for what they are, but if you get into it later on cultural identities, I have a real strong goal or hope where humanity goes with this versus staying in this, this binary um, cultural appropriation. Everybody's afraid to talk and it's not okay to be you. It's okay to be you culture that we have going on right now, which I think is counterproductive to any kind of unification and real serious future growth. So I hope I didn't spend too far off on that one and people got what I'm trying to put down there. Yeah, for sure. And um, I think we see the division most often in media. Uh, you know, it seems like media or even the White House itself is sometimes pushing um, agendas, which are, you know, more divisive than um, unitary in nature and pit different groups against each other, whether it's racial one week or um you know, has to do with abortion practices the next week or whatever, it just bounces from topic to topic, increasing the division. And I guess, um, you know, what I was getting at with, with what I'm reading in, in these research articles about this deconstructing of um, white imperialism within research practices, largely a lot of these articles are written by white people or are written by um committees that are multi-ethnic and include white people on them. So there is certainly some, um, some change from within as far as like, you know, I can, and I still struggle with this because I hear it all the time that, that um, you know, white power needs to be taken down because the white 
uh, white people are still the majority, um, you know, ethnic class. And I struggle with that because numbers-wise, I think the, the Asian um, culture far uh, outstrips um, Anglo-white um, numbers as far as global populations. Um, so I struggle with that. But as far as like white power, white dominance over the Western world and, and into other parts of the world, I do see a need to help as someone who's aware of these issues, like help to deconstruct that a little bit to make things more equal. Although you, know, you bring up this white society too. And I feel that for sure, like in my social work program, there's only eight of us in the entire program and I'm the only white male in the whole program. The rest are um, female or ethnic minorities, things like that. And so they bring up the, the, the idea of white oppression quite a bit and specifically white male oppression. And I'm the only one sitting there in class and it almost feels like an attack at times, not to me directly, but like, you know, I hear this echo from, from people who are informed and uninformed saying, you know, it's, it's your fault. The, the white men who live in this world right now in, in the U.S., it's your fault and you need to do something about it. That's a lot of pressure that, that I feel like I don't necessarily deserve because I didn't cause any of the oppression that you're you know, referring to, slavery, things like that. I mean, I do. Well, well who's, knowing, yeah, yeah. Who's, who's the slaves that they're referring to? Um, well, here, over, yeah, who knows? Over over history uh, in, you know, conquistas. Well, that, well every, every single culture had slavery. So yeah. are we only picking out? are they only picking out a very tiny select section of history and then not going back any further? And then we stay on this one selection of history and say, well, we're going to focus on this 400 uh, year period. And we're even going to get the flag wrong because almost all American slavery was under the, under the British flag. So we only had slavery in the, in the U S for less than a hundred years, I think 80 years, something like that. Um, and then we, as a nation through uh, uh, the Northern and Lincoln's movements eradicated it through the Republican party. Right. But, um, yeah. What about just like white slavery over ethnic cultures worldwide though? Well, what about ethnic slavery over anybody else? How about people with guns enslaving people without guns? Sure. So are we only picking out people with pale skin and their, their slavery is bad or is the, millions of slaves in Africa that are being enslaved by their own people. Is that bad? That, that doesn't seem to be bad. Nobody seems to be upset. Yeah, that's what that's the, yeah. I mean, it is equally, if not more bad because it's happening currently, but uh, you're right. People aren't aware of stuff like that. They're, they're only um, being fed this different narrative from within the country, you know? It's so when I, when I hear people talk about white people, this or black people, that, um, Listen, not all black people are going to make it into the NBA, right? Um, I, I know black people, I can jump higher than them. And I, I'm not going to the NBA. So um, most black guys and most white guys are not world leaders. And they're not empire creators. They didn't, they didn't start out with nothing and create a massive empire or start out with a million dollars or $5 million and, and create billions of dollars. Most people, if you give them $5 million will die in a cocaine overdose. So 
it's yeah, regardless of color or, or culture or whatever. Right, most people are not capable of doing big things. Now, the old model of doing big things. If we're gonna if we're gonna get mad at people today, like gosh darn you for the 1750s. Um, I, I'm going to have to ask those people that are getting upset about this. You have to go find a room to cry because I can't do anything about it. Neither can you. And we can't find anybody that can do anything about this. But if we're going to look at the spectrum of slavery and holding people down, um, it went from these people have sharp sticks and those people don't have sharp sticks and the sharp stick people held down those other people. We can keep going back and back and back. Um, even to the Barbary pirates that would pick up Caucasians in Europe on the beach and sell them off in Africa and the Middle East as slaves, which was a massive slave trade, but nobody cares. Um, I don't care. It doesn't affect me today. It's unfortunate that it occurred. Yeah, but you're not seeking reparations or, or any special treatment because that happened to your culture from a different culture. Uh, yeah, and it didn't even happen. Obviously, it didn't happen to my family or I wouldn't be here, but the... Uh, there's a lot of confusion, right? And I, we know, you know, the, you know, Bumpy, right? I don't. Okay, so he's a he's a tie boxer here in Denver, and uh, he had told me I should be upset because Celts were slaves to Romans for somewhere in the neck of the woods of 800 years. And I said, boy, I just don't know if I have the energy to get upset about that. And uh, he said, well, you should because it, it held you down. I'm like, I think it was the best thing that happened to us, honestly. If it wasn't for Roman intervention and everything, we, we wouldn't be here today. I, I, I'm pretty sure that my family wouldn't have made it. And uh, the Roman intervention came in and, and stabilized Celtic communities and cultures. Uh, even when they departed, we didn't know what else to be besides kind of Romanish when they left. So they stabilized Europe. Europe was a mess prior to that. And um, there's nothing, there's nothing uniquely awesome about the European brain over anybody else's. It was, um, the European structure was, I think, 100% primarily due to luck and resources and where they landed and Roman intervention. So it probably wasn't awesome for the 800,000 Celts killed in a single day off the River Rye by Caesar's legions. But overall, in the long run, we have integrated into society and have disappeared and no longer identify as Celts. And we are now just Americans or Irish or, or wherever, we're, wherever we live. And it was that tribal disconnect that Europe had that made it not work in the first place that the Romans came in and collectively fixed. So I'm not saying that the 12% of African slaves that ended up here in America was a good thing, but I'm pretty sure nobody wants to live in a country that's unstable in Africa. Um, it's all a, series of unfortunate events and now people live in a country where they can do some stuff and so that's what I, I just wanted to do stuff you know, use take advantage of what you have in front of you and, and do some stuff but you've got some kids now and I think it's only kids that uh, that are just screaming and, and there's the thing is there's no they're not looking for an answer they're just screaming mm -hmm. what what do you want 
equality. Well, then go be equal to people. I don't, I don't know what to tell you, but I think most people are just trying to go to work tomorrow. So, and I don't think it gets any deeper than that. Everybody's just struggling to make their mortgage. So you don't think that there's still a, uh, an underlying structure of, you know, white ethnocentrism that still kind of rules over uh, or governs over policy and, and um, opportunity and things like that in this country. I mean, most of our politicians are still, unfortunately, mostly white males, but I mean that we're transitioning to a more um, eclectic system right now, which I think is, is much more, um, I don't know, much more beneficial in the longer term. But I mean, I, I don't know. I, because I'm a white male, I'm constantly told that I have, I will naturally have difficulty in recognizing that white um, oppressive, you know, upper hand that, that everyone else is talking about. And I don't feel like I don't have, uh, you know, not intentionally anyway, any responsibility for for undoing anything that I did or didn't do. You know what I mean? Well, I, I, I would like to hear what the, the injustices is. I, I hear it sometimes, like, periodically from uh, – are, are we still – are you still capable of hearing me? Oh, yeah, we're still good. Okay. okay. Um, from the Indian nations. Like, I find it real interesting here when people speak on Indians. I'm from Montana, um, outside of uh, – there's we have Indian reservations, and we have interactions with the Indians all the time. But I find it interesting when people here throw down their opinions on that and on how how bad it is for them. And I'm like, all right, well, I'll let them know how bad it is for them next time I see them. And I don't know if they're going to agree with you. Um, the guys that I know that uh, that are Indians, they uh, they pay for their their people's college education 100% completely clean off the casinos and own tons of land and have good farms and entire I, I don't know where these where these downtrodden, depressed people are. Um, we have you have the option to do in this country for now, and it's getting less as we're getting more diversified. It's freedoms going away, um, in my opinion, incredibly fast. Can you speak to I that like, a little bit? Yeah, I, I considered America once upon. I love the freedoms we used to have. Um, it, it was good, but now we're talking. Younger generation, up to 65%, is wanting to vote in um, either socialism or communism. And I'll be dead by the time that happens, but my kids won't. And their, and their kids might not be, you know. So, you know, I told my kids, I'm like, if, if, if they vote in something like this, I don't want you to be a victim to it. Um, participate in the program, right? get into the government and become the hammer that smashes the nails that all these people wanted smashed um, and take from them everything that they wanted taken from, them. but be on top when you do it. And that's my, that's my opinion. If these people want to be held down by voting in a government like that, um, I will certainly groom my family to be the hammer that they so desperately want to hit them. The, uh, the freedoms issue, if we're talking about governing speech, I mean, you, right now what's affecting Americans isn't so much federal law or something of that nature being put into play, even though federal law in itself is a topic that's, that's hard to wrap your head around with the amount of laws that are made per day. You can't even track it. The, uh, but it's moved into like cultural law 
on what you can or can't say or who you can be or what you can wear or it's okay to assault that guy because he offended me but then you can't assault him ever no matter what he does and these these weird things that are going on I think are hard for people to track and I don't know that they're really mainstream but they people think they're mainstream and they're not sure how to act and I think it's causing people just to stay away from each other I think I, I do believe that this new trend of crazy like the, the liberal party to me um the conservative party to me can be just like oh my god you're so you're so square on your beliefs and shut off but the, the liberal party is just like a like ten thousand individual pirate ships and they all have their special crazy on each boat and then we're supposed to vote for that and i and i have a hard time voting for the group of men in women's lingerie trying to use a certain bathroom and over here they um, they want this special rights for this special feeling and it, it's crazy to me when everybody's just trying to pay their mortgage so you're, so you're saying like with all the confusion out there as far as like all the different wants and needs and perspectives coming from these different parties it off i mean for you and me and for probably a lot of people um it, it just turns us off to even wanting to pay attention to what's happening. Um, I mean, all the confusion, all the things going on, you don't know which thing to pay attention to or which thing's truthful or not, or fake news or, or whatever. Um, more people are likely to just back away and say like, you know, that's too much. I don't want to focus any amount of time or effort on that. So I'm going to go, you know, just do my thing. And like you said, pay my mortgage, go to work, um, try and make things better for my family in this lifetime. That's, that's all I think is really happening. Um, I can't relate to anything that they're saying on the left and it's left me, and I'm a very middle of the road kind of guy. Um, it's, it's left me with no choice, but to vote the other side because it seems less insane. And I, I had a Canadian friend get a hold of me the other day and she said, uh, what do you think of what Trump's doing with this letter that he sent? And I'm like, man, I don't have time to be outraged about I don't even know how you guys have time to be outraged about anything like political outrage has been from day one. None of it affects anybody. Um, almost anything the federal government does really doesn't affect you. What affects you is your local government. And nobody even talks about what happens in Westminster or Broomfield's governments and what you are and aren't allowed to do based upon what that city's voting in because nobody shows up. So it's really kind of almost a monarchy in those small towns because nobody's showing up to represent themselves. They're only showing up for federal elections and getting uh, wound up over letters the president wrote that, and none of the people that are getting wound up have a security clearance. So they don't have even a fraction of the information necessary to understand what's going on. I, do you remember that there used to be a Budweiser commercial where it have a guy sitting at a bar talking crap about like Mike Tyson or something. And he's, he's like, you know, I could beat that guy with one hand tied behind my back. And the bartender goes, I'd like to see that. And so he smacks the beer on top of the TV and the guy's in the ring with Tyson with one hand tied behind his back. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> I'd like to see that. When people say, here's what I think should happen. I'm like, bam, I'm going to put that beer on top of the TV and put you in there and just watch you make an ass out of yourself because there's so much going on that there's no way these people – there's no way I understand it. There's, there's no way anybody understands it unless they're in the mix. 
So I don't know the answer to this, man. I, sure. Yeah, and I think the the bipartisan crap uh, is the first step in how we need to probably move forward into a different system. Um, because, you know, like you, you were mentioning socialism and communism before. And, um, you know, I know that, well, now I now know that, that you are against uh, fundamental socialism or fundamental um, communism. But uh, I also know that you're, you know, black belt and Sambo practitioner and have a deep respect and love for uh, Russian culture and Russian people and things like that, too. So there's got to be some part of you, too, that, that can see, you know, maybe there might be some socialist elements that if incorporated into this um, mixed pot of uh, political theory and, and political action, some socialist things could be good, some um, communist things maybe have worked for different cultures at different times and could be useful at least in informing different uh, political structures but also you know I think incorporating an eclectic uh, viewpoint of like bringing in um, some capitalistic things some democratic some republican some green party all these little aspects I don't tend to vote just for one party or the other even though they make you identify as one or the other when you register um, I tend to vote based on issue, not based on um, party. And unfortunately, sometimes if I'm voting for an issue, say I, I like um, socialized education, I think all universities should be paid for by uh, social, um, you know, social means as well as uh, healthcare. You know, but if I vote for the politician who's supporting those, then I also have to support him on all these other liberal things that I don't agree with them on. And so I think getting rid of this two-party system for sure, um, dismantling that, uh, which who knows how we're going to do that, but then um, really having or educating people on what the issues really are, and locally especially, but also federally and nationally, and get people to vote with their dollars and vote based on issue and ethic ra rather than on um, tribal party lines you know yeah i man i don't know uh so i'm not i'm not one of those guys that believes in uh pre-medical care um i think uh, almost all medical problems that people have in this country uh, the large bulk of them are lifestyle related self-caused yep most yeah. of them yeah and i and i don't want to have to work um, 15 more hours a week to to cover that. And I don't think that everybody else that leads a good life should have to go to work harder to cover for that other person that doesn't want to pay. Somebody's got to pay for it. And these topics are spoken about almost in a magical way when the word free, and I think they just need to adjust their terminage. Listen, we're going to do universal health care. We're going to force a certain group of people to pay for it. And if they don't, we're going to fucking put them in jail. There are slaves because they try hard and they have a little bit more money. And so we're going to imprison these people and we're going to take their resources, which, by the way, isn't even going to come close to covering what's necessary. So what we're going to do is if we change the wording and just said the truth instead of making us because when you hand this over to a 18 year old that doesn't have any drive and you go, would you like free school? Well, hell yeah, I'd like free school. 
well, I'm assuming that the building's not sucking free power and that it's not using free brick and mortar and that it's not using free instructors and it's not using free books, right? Um, so where where is this money coming from and which group of people are we going to literally enslave to pay for this free stuff for somebody else? It's an archaic design. Yeah, and, and as you were talking about it, you know, a new thought popped in my head and a possible idea. Um, you know, with the with the healthcare piece, you know, I'm and as a Buddhist, I you know, I believe that every human being is should be entitled to at least basic healthcare to sustain life. I think our technology is at the point and our resources worldwide are at a point where if distributed properly, we could probably handle something like that. But I do also agree with your point that I don't want to be paying into systems that don't um, necessarily benefit me, um, whereas they're benefiting others who aren't paying into the system. So maybe a different type of, uh, not free healthcare, but um, stratified healthcare, whereas everyone's entitled to at least the bare minimum basic emergency care. Um, but if you contribute to the system, whether it's through taxes financially or through uh, work hours or volunteer hours, then you can get uh, upgraded statuses for, for healthcare because you've paid into the system or contributed. Uh, you can get a differing level of, of healthcare. I don't know if that um, would be fair or not, but um, if it's based on um, work put into the system and not necessarily things that um, could be could be uh, you know scrambled by things like race or culture like uh, earning ability or, or like that then I think it could be a more equitable system and provide much more people with needed health services but I agree you know people need to take personal accountability first and foremost for their health I mean you need to invest in yourself every single day in order to not have to uh, draw from the system when you're older. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder if anything's really going to work until something that's not being talked about gets visited. And I believe that's the U S tort system. So you can sue a doctor over anything. Mm -hmm. And um, it, I went in for x-rays actually recently. They took x-rays of my neck and, and everything so we could see what the bone structure is looking like now after all these years of damage. And the doctor was just kind of, he looked at the x-rays and looked at me and goes, I, don't, I can't, I can't help you. Is that the same <laughs> shoulder that you had the bone spurs? Yeah. So the bone spur in my clavicle now, my clavicle is about the size of two hands put together and it's growing into my chest. And I can't feel it because I've lost connection in my nerves and my neck, thankfully. So I'm, I'm mostly numb up here and that's what allows me to move. And, uh, the bone spurs are growing around my neck and they're all over my elbows. It, it's, it's going to be a crazy final 10 years of life, but, uh, they just, they don't want to deal with that. There's not much we can do with that. I mean, I don't think it's society's problem to spend, a um, million dollars keeping me alive an additional five years. Um, so I, I think everybody's got to die, but the, in, in time, but what I think goes on with medical pricing is 
because you can sue people and you've got people in the country that make a living off just suing people because that's such an easy thing. Medical prices have gotten so high and out of control that we're talking about enslaving a group of people to finance medical pricing. That's out of control. It's, it's, it's the medical pricing. So I think doctors are worth the money that, that they charge, um, for a visit, an office visit, for example, because uh, they give you a peace of mind. But for the most part, uh, the issues that people have, if it's not cancer or if it's, if it's not uh, some kind of brain aneurysm, if it's a, it's a health-related thing, it really drops on the individual and telling a person to uh, go out and get in shape and then the doctor can get sued because, hey, he told me to get in shape and I broke my Achilles walking I think that there needs to be some kind of protection because these doctors have to run such expensive insurance to protect themselves from the greatest victims of society in America. These, these poor, poor people that don't have any coverage, which I guarantee are the ones that are doing this, um, that are a large part of that are doing this tort system stuff. Uh, I, I have very little experience in my life when I, for example, running the moving company, which is slightly off topic from, from doctors, obviously, but when I was working with middle class and upper middle class people, really, I can think of in a 10-year period, three issues that I've had. Um, almost every low-income person that we came across with their particle board garbage in their apartments um, filed lawsuits and tried to sue and um, created issues, refused to pay. Um, they were nightmares. And so... It, it got to be so predictable for me over this time that if somebody contacted my business and I said, Oh, um, how did you hear about us? And they said out of the phone book, which means they didn't have a computer. I just hung up the phone. So, um, and we grew when I started hanging up the phone on those people, the business grew and it's, and it wasn't, and some people are like, Oh, but what about them? They're poor. And it's not my, it's not my responsibility to pick these people up. I don't have to be the whipping post and I can, I can barely hold my own head up. I don't, I don't need that. So I, I think it all comes back to uh, the, the tort system and, and people suing people for nonsensical things in this country with no ramification. And I think if you sue somebody and you lose your case is bogus that you have to cover all their attorney's fees and time lost. And that would fix everything. I think that would drive prices right back down. Yeah. Um, but what do you think is underlying that? Um, I mean, because if so many more uh, impoverished people are filing lawsuits and driving up these prices, um, you know, the underlying cause of that behavior that they're displaying, that going out and seeking opportunity through these means, through the court systems, um, there's that underlying need of that's not being met. And that is, you know, that they can't, you know, maybe they can't, uh, actually, I don't know what the causes are, but you know, I can imagine maybe they feel they can't make money, um, enough to support their family. Uh, it's better than selling drugs. It's, uh, you know, it's, it, maybe it was taught, right? So there's this whole idea about, um, generational education, things that parents, parents pass on to the kids and say like, Oh no, this is okay. Or, you know, Aunt, Aunt Charlotte um, is a millionaire now because of her operation that she got sued. And, you know, we passed down this generational knowledge that, 
maybe you can get a leg up if you step on somebody else to do it. Yeah, we, we know scam artists exist all over. And I don't know that these people are the only people doing it. I, 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 did you know that it's in, a, in your gym, for example, if you're playing the radio, there's a, there's a group of representatives for attorneys that can come in. If they hear you playing the radio, they'll sue you. And they'll probably win for big numbers. You're not allowed to play the radio anywhere publicly. And it's, uh, it's considered to be abuse to the artists. And so you have to pay this particular group of attorneys, I think seven or $800 a year to play the radio. So, so if you do it, you don't admit to it. And so they go around in this nonsense law that was made in 1921 and just sue the crap out of unsuspecting businesses and put them out of business. And then they make a lot of money. And then they're like, well, it's good. I made a lot of money. Um, so we know that there's scam artists and there's, uh, there's assholes in, in every denomination. But as far as aunt whatever did, uh, you know, sued her doctor. So now we can sue our doctor. I, I think the fix is making it that if you're wrong about what you're, what you're doing, you owe all this money to that other person. I think that would just clean up everything that's bogus before it even started. Right. Because then people would have to really consider like, am I standing on enough evidence and enough ground to really make a case solid? Am I willing to take that risk? Um, I, I, you know, I see your point. Um, you were also talking about, you know, how people are entrapped in this slavery type system where, you know, they may have to pay into a system to help support others. Um, you know, I, right away, I, what came to my mind, because I'm dealing with it right now, is student loan debt. And I feel like through the pursuit of my dreams and my education, and I'm pursuing knowledge that is out there for everybody to get, and yet they put a price on it, and a really hefty price at that. I'm sure you're going to experience that soon with your boys getting to that age. But for me, like, I've incurred, you know, over $100,000 in student debt. And I feel as if I'm a slave to, you know, the bill collectors and things like that uh, because of my education. And luckily, you know, I have a growth mindset. And so I, you know, I see that that education that I gained is invaluable and well worth that amount of money. Um, and it, it will make it easier for me to make that back. It still feels like um, unfairly unfair entrapment um, by a, an oppressive system. Well, I, I think from my understanding, these prices went through the roof when the federal government got in the loaning business and that allowed the colleges to start jacking up prices and knowing that there's no way that you guys could get out of this, you can't file bankruptcy on it. So once the government gets involved and just starts throwing money at these campuses, there's no reason for them not to raise that, uh, the cost of tuition because you're going to get the loan. And you're going to have to pay it back. Yeah, it, even if you die, it goes to your kids. Really? Yep, student loan does. Really, they just get they get handed a bill, huh? Yep. It's nonsense. Yeah, so I, you know, this this kind of leads us back to where we kind of originated when you asked me what I thought, and I, and I said I really like the freedoms that this country once had, and. You know, now I see it. Uh, um, it was the land of the home of the free, or 
in uh, the land of the free and home of the brave, right? Right. Um, I kind of see it uh, as the land of the fee and the home of the slave now. And I really believe that what you're talking about, about that student debt and the way it does turn you into not even an indentured servant, but a slave. Um, I believe that uh, young people in their, in their drive to use a lack of information on what could make things better are going to work very hard to change and experiment with the lives of other people and make things much worse. Um, I, I, I hate doing social experiments on, on living people with information that you don't know for sure is going to work. Um, we, we've done pretty well as a country uh, when the government stayed out of business and stayed out of stuff. Um, but now people really want uh, the government, which is just a group of people with an agenda. And that agenda is to make sure that they have their money. And so they have a metaphorical gun in everybody's mouth, making sure they're getting their money so they can grow and they can have their paychecks and their high benefits and their good incomes. But everybody else is just here to supply that. And I feel like people are super excited about being a slave to that and are voting that in more and more and more to where the only thing that matters right now, and you're going to have a hard time disagreeing with this. If you think about it, I believe is the only thing that really matters right now in America is government employees. That's it. You mean the only thing that matters to what? To people? To people. Yeah, they don't even realize this. The right side, they're like, oh, our soldiers and our military, that's government employees. And then the left is like, oh, our, our social stuff and our... our, our social our programs. And, yeah, programs, right? It's all government stuff. But... You know, what, what happened to the regular guy in this? The regular guy in this is not being represented anymore. He's just an indentured servant. You're a slave for $100,000, and you're not going to be cut free until you pay that off. And if we keep voting this stuff in this way, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. Luckily, I'm not going to be around for it. So I only have 25 more years of life, right? Hopefully a little bit more. Um, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. That'll put me out there at, at about that, that time. And I don't think I need to go any further than that. But I'm looking at 25 more years. So things are a little different to me in my head. <laughs> when, you look, when you put a timer on it, I'm like, ooh, I better focus on what's important. Or I'm going to leave here just having had a bunch of emotions and opinions. And, and I need to get some results done so my kids don't have to live struggling like I did. Yeah, you know, and that brings me to my next you know, question for you is this idea of um, generational education. Um, I know that you are a strong proponent and very active in educating your two boys about um, life and about what, what the truths of, of life is going to be like. And you don't um, sugarcoat it for them, but you're, you're preparing them very well for the realities of current culture. And I feel like a lot of parents out there are um, already misinformed. And because of their misinformation, they're passing down this misinformation to their kids and per further perpetuating this ignorance and these cycles of, uh, you know, it's like that, that movie Idiocracy where people just get dumber over time because it's the, 
you know, the dumb people who are just having all the kids and stuff like that. Uh, it's kind of hilarious to, to think about um, today. But um, can you speak to that as far as like generational education, what that means to you and what trends you see going on? What, what's going wrong with, with the education of our kids from the parents, not necessarily from the education system? Well, so we're talking a culture now. And I spent some time in Holland some, t- some while ago. And, and Trump had just been elected in the office when I was over there. And most of the Dutch people are just really cool and they didn't really bother with it. But some of the people that didn't know me, I was in a locker room at this martial arts gym, um, Taboga Martial Arts uh, Kickboxing Club. And I, I guy walks in and he's, he says, hello, right? And so I said, hi. And he goes, oh, you're um, – people thought I was English first over there. They're, they're – their initial impact on me looking at me, they thought that I was English. And uh, uh, my, my response was like, no, I'm not. You know, it's like, <laughs> what do you mean I don't look English? Well, they, maybe um, they thought that Americans should be like fat and, and uh, loud or something. No, they didn't think anything like that. It turns out when I went over to England, I went into London and nobody looked like me in London. Like London, uh, London's almost dead. It's, it's just, it's almost in ruins. It's just, it's just a bunch of deteriorating buildings and um, it's an, it's a ton of mosques and it's just, it's it, London's not England anymore. So we left uh, London and we went further North up next to Hadrian's wall. And I got out of the car and I was like, ah, this is why they think I'm English. Um, I look exactly like everybody here. So it's it made sense there, but they had this these preconceived concepts in their head of what I was, and they they even with a buddy of mine that I met over there that was Irish, they said, "Hey, there's another American here. He's a door maker. Um, do you want to meet him?" I'm like, "Yes, that'd be sweet." And so the guy's walking across the uh, this uh, open plaza, and he's walking over, and I looked at Amy, and I'm like, "That's not an American." That's, that's not an American guy. And he got up close and he turned out to be Irish. And he goes, I don't know why they think I'm American. They think I'm American, right? So there's, there's some confusion in the Dutch mind about what we are and everybody else is, just like we have confusion about what everybody else is, correct? Correct. So what, uh, what these people said to me in the locker room, they go, well, what do you think of your president? And I said, I don't know. He just got voted in. And he goes, do you think he's going to do a good job? I'm like, man, like, I don't know the guy. <laughs> I have no idea who the guy is and, and we're not going to get wound up. They were in the middle of their elections too. And they all wanted more socialism. And they said that to me in those words. I'm like, you guys want more socialism. And they go, yes, more socialism. And it was interesting to hear this because um, a lot of the people that were telling me this, um, we're speaking over people that are having a hard time moving up in the world because of it. And Maddie's a friend of mine that, that lives there works in a similar field that you work in, except he has to live with his mom and he will have to live with his mother until his probably forties um, in order to purchase a house. Apparently moving up in that, in that culture is almost impossible and another friend of mine that lives over there is a tax attorney for uh, defending people from their IRS model. And he says that their IRS is like ours. And it's like, just, he says they're fucking gangsters and they're just 
they'll tear you down. And it's, I don't know how somebody would want more of that, but culturally that's what they wanted because that's what they knew. And so apparently the only fix would be more of it. That, that was my opinion. So when we come to learning from families over here in the States and hearing people say, Hey, let's take Holland's medical program. Cause your, your medical is hundred percent free over there and it's free because you paid 65% of your income into it. And then you pay 50% of the bill. You pay 65% of your income, I believe. And then you pay 50% of the bill. That's, that's what they mean by free. So if we're going to redefine words, that's free, which sounds super expensive to me, but that's free. Um, so when we're talking these, these cultures of, of what people um, understand and they teach their kids. And so the Hollands are like, why don't the Dutch are like, why don't you do this over in America? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Why don't you come to America and show us how it's done? Why don't you go across the inner city of Chicago and then come over in here to Broomfield and, and use the same message to get across what you're trying to do and see if you can culturally connect to both groups of people and, and see how you can make uh, the crackers in, in northern and southern Florida agree with the people up in inner city Chicago. And um, if you can get the people in Kentucky and in coal mines to get on board with uh, the Boulderites hippies. Uh, I don't know how you're going to do this. This country is so massive and it's filled with all these little cults of mentality. I don't understand how we can unify that. So inside of that, if you come from, and it, you know, the dating world was always very tricky. I think a lot of the times people don't mix because you sit down on that first date, for example, and you just start having a conversation. You can tell that you guys don't have anything in common, right? We've all been there. Right. Um, so that same, that same issue that I just used for an example of dating, that's going to transfer into everything else. We don't have anything in common and we're trying to unify. Well, we all have, we do all have um, consciousness in common in that we are all experiencing it in this plane of existence together. I think that that, um, you know, that concept around spirituality and, and not religion and not um, different traditions, you know, necessarily, but that ultimate, underlying quest for understanding our purpose and our um, our position among the cosmos, I think we all share that, regardless of culture or race or gender or, you know, identity issue, that thing transcends it all. If we can all get on, um, like, the same page around that, that could be unifying. So, I, first of all, I think that Buddhism um, in its modern form has out-evolved the human species. For sure. And... So, yes, I agree. And so that would take me to a real quick snap over. Would I agree to socialism if we could all agree that we're, as a community, as an entire globe, we're going to move into a Star Trek type world and we're going to move on to Mars and we're going to do this stuff and we're going to try to do things right? Yeah, I'm in on it. I'll, I'll be the guy that puts the wood trim on the bottom of the, on the carpet in the spaceship, right? Um, 
I don't even know if I'm qualified to be a janitor in a spaceship, but um, the I'll do what I can in that. But but that's not what's happening. Everything is about I want to get mine. That's how people think, right? And the poorer they get, the more I want to get mine is. And I believe the greedier they become, which leads to less prosperity. Sure. And I think the root of that, I got to get mine, is this idea that you are separate from me. You know, if we can, again, unify. Uh, and I, I obviously, you know, I'm studying psychedelics for my dissertation. Um, I'm an advocate for um recreational and uh, spiritual psychedelic use and psychedelic therapies. And I feel like um, through these sorts of methodologies, but as well as through like meditation and even deep flow states in, in athletics that I've experienced, um, we can tap into the greater truth, which is that we are all one. We are all one organism. We're all one species. We're all, you know, we are one organism with the planet and one with the entire cosmos, there is no duality. There is no you versus me or you and me. And therefore, my pursuit to ha to get one over you or to make my position higher than yours, that pursuit is um, it's an illusion, and it's it's uh, it's a it's a waste of time because I'm just fighting against myself uh, in this one unified field. You know, um, you're, you're forcing um things and power over uh things rather than you know more acceptance and compassion so how are you going to get this message across to wall street and uh southern crackers well um so far well i mean hopefully uh wall street is starting to get on board with at least microdosing psychedelics because they see the benefits that it has for their work and then hopefully that'll bridge the gap to higher dose sessions, which tend to um, sort of shatter your worldview and make you and make you open up to these possibilities. Um, in the South, uh, that I don't know. Um, but hopefully through more decriminalization, like what's happened in Denver around mushrooms and decriminalization more nationwide, and you know, it's gonna spread. And I think in your lifetime, uh, definitely in my lifetime, this is what I'm devoting my life's work to, is gonna be, um, better drug policy, allowing people to, allowing people the freedom once again to be able to explore their consciousness, this one thing that we all human beings have as an innate right to do and that is now currently restricted and prohibited, uh, those doorways are going to open up and I think people are going to start taking advantage of their ability to explore their consciousness and find out these truths that we are all one and stop with all the, uh, the one-upsmanship between each other. We're just going to start seeing through that illusion again and getting more in line with, like you said, with Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist theory that is way advanced, way, way beyond where we are right now. So let me ask you a question, man. If, if you were to look at people in 1750 or 1850 um, or 1950 and look at people today do you feel like we've progressed more towards what you're talking about or further away from it? Probably further away. I mean, I think originally as human beings, we were, um, we were more centered around religions like paganism and connection and natural um, spirituality that, that had like this unifying connecting principle. And now we've transitioned out of that into this more divisive, you know, this is my religion, this is your religion. 
we have clear boundaries, and I think we need to shift back into the old, old world views of, uh, you know, the underlying unifying concepts that are in all religions. The stories are just different, you know? We just need to drop the stories and find that underlying unifying principle. You see, I, I believe that we've moved closer to what you're talking about than further away than we were in 1750. That's good. Um, in 1750, they would have put you in a basket and stabbed you to death with a pitchfork. True. Right? And that, that, I would have had to just been like standing there and watch because I don't want to go in a basket and be stabbed with pitchforks. So, um, what do you, when you take those hardlined ideologies from back in the old days, because we're talking um, the Muslims will kill you for not being Muslim, the Christians will kill you for not being Christian, right? And you had these hardlined rulers, even here in America, you had staunch 1750, man, you had staunch rules. You couldn't just open up a business back in those days. You had to go through a very strict uh, apprenticeship and it had to be signed off by local, local leaders. Um, the Blair Witch Trials were because of a fungus, a psychedelic fungus on, on rye bread. What do you mean the Salem Witch Trials? Salem, yes. Um, and, and they killed, uh, what did I say? You said uh, the Blair Witch Trials. Blair Witch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those things. Um, yeah, the Salem's, uh, that was crazy that they, they didn't even have rationalization in those, in those days. They didn't have any information. Right. And I think what's what's making a big change, and I, less people are dying now, um, more people are getting medical care than ever. More people are coming out of poverty than ever before in human history. Um, free markets have pulled parts of Africa out of poverty that would have never seen it. And we got to get rid of some of their governments that are uh, I think what holds Africa down is their governing systems. Um, and that's just my opinion piece there. Uh, I think taking away 100 percent of the money from people that earn it is is bad. So I, I really believe that the world is on this track that everybody's screaming it should go to. And I think they're doing pretty good when you're looking at where people were in the 1940s and 1950s with all these topics. And now these, they're not even topics that really should be brought up anymore. Um, uh, like 1950s, a black guy jumping in a swimming pool been a big deal. Happens all the time now. Nobody cares. We don't care, right? So we've, we've grown and we've become more accepting. Even talking about the crackers down south. And, and do you understand what I mean by crackers? I think so. But maybe you should explain it to the audience who might not know. Maybe okay, I don't so, know. <laughs> the cracker is a slight derogatory term for uh, northern Gaelic people all right honky is a hungarian factory worker cracker is a group of people that moved into that southern area they were called crackers in europe and uh and i think it's because they were cracking wise back in the old days shakespeare actually mentioned cracker in one of his plays um we know it's an old term that kind of just collectively gathers these hard-headed people and uh, governors in florida would tell the crackers not to go into certain swamp areas and build houses and he said and they was like man that they would move right into where you told them not to move and they'd start building a cabin and you go in and try to say listen we need you to move up here where it's not a flood zone and then they'll fight you to the death over it so you got to let them just die um it was a particular group of hard-headed people that were crackers and you're dealing with the descendants of them and uh when you're down south but 
here's my point. Is the South more racist now than it was in 1750? I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't live down there. No, it, it must be much less racist than it was in 1750. That's true. I mean, it, it must be because there's, there's people in the South, people of color in the South coming into um, prominent you know, political positions and um, mayoral positions and influencers. There's still probably, I mean, there's still definitely aspects of racism all over the country. Um, if it's going to be someplace, it is down there, but it is sure. less than what right. it was. So you're saying in general, um, the tribalism and not just racial tribalism, but tribalism in general, people really sticking to their guns um, has reduced and, and that we are unifying more. Um, say that again. I think the tribalism has slightly reduced, yes. Yeah, okay. So, so then what are, what are some of the benefits? Because I, I still read a lot, of, um, a lot of current contemporary literature about, uh, you know, that the, the tribalism does still exist in most parts of the world and most, you know, s cities and it's across scales from, you know, tribalism between families to tribalism and communities, between states, between countries, things like that. Um, and there has definitely been some benefits to adopting a tribalist orientation across history or else we wouldn't have used it this long. Um, but now, like you, like you said, you, you're seeing this decrease in tribalism in general. So what are some of the benefits that can come from the reduction in tribalism? Um, and what are some of the, the benefits of tribalism that we might have to consider giving up in order to move forward uh, into a more unity-based uh, society? Man, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. So I, I think that we've not been here before. Um, in too many civilizations. If we've been this place before in human civilization, I don't know about it. Um, tribalism, for example, built the library of Alexandria at one time. Now, tribalism also burnt the library of Alexandria, right? Um, and, and for those people that don't know, um, early Christians burnt the library of Alexandria and, and Christians will, will say that that's not true, but I, I, I really believe it is. Um, and they burnt with it all of human history that uh, we had recorded and stored in the library of Alexandria, which I think was a tremendous amount of information. And these types of acts of tribalism probably were stepping stones to put us into the dark ages but it was also tribalism that pulls us out. Um, Christianity played a massive role, for example, tribal organization in feeding people in the dark ages so they could live. Right. So they did some of the groups of Christian Christianity did amazing good. Um, some did amazing bad, but I don't know if we're going to break free of travel, uh, tribalism, in my opinion, because we don't have a single direction to head. And the only messages that are being sent out there is, hey, give me free stuff. And that's not real motivating for most people. Mm -hmm. I didn't get free stuff, right? I didn't right. go to college for free. Not at all. 
um, my kids aren't going to go to college for free and I'm going to pay for their education. Right. So then what do you teach your kids? I mean, your kids are growing up in a society that is telling them at every twist and turn, uh, support free things, um, you know, support all these uh, liberal agendas and uh, all these different things that, that you need to be careful of. You know, your son's might in their lifetime have to sign a contract of consent to go on a date with a woman and give her a kiss. You know, um, some of these things are getting a little ridiculous. How do you teach and inform your boys um, amidst this culture that is pounding them with all these propagandist messages? So first on the, on the dating thing, what I told my kids I want to see, um, I want to see a text confirmation from a girl. I want to see a saved voicemail confirmation from a girl. I want to see an email confirmation from a girl. And I want to meet the girl. And I want to be able to give character judgment on this person. And I have had, and I have absolutely said no to uh, one of the girls that came with one of my boys. Uh, she stepped out of the car and I turned around and looked at her through the window and I just said no this is done. And, uh, he said, why? And he's like, I'm going to give it one more chance. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to look at her mother. She's missing teeth. We're done. And I did went out, looked at her mom. She's missing four or five teeth. You know, they were done. And, uh, then it turned out that family had uh, significant <laughs> drug, drug use issues that, uh, I disapprove of opium, things like that. Opiates. Um, so, as an active parent, it's, it's my job to make sure that my kids don't drown metaphorically or in water. So I have to teach them my best knowledge of how to swim and let them know you can find people that know how to swim better than me. Maybe one day you'll know how to swim better than me. And I hope you do. But for right now, when you're dealing with women, um, this isn't going to be a very popular opinion. I look at women as adult children and you have to take special precautions with them. And when you're dealing with children, women, you have to take a lot of precautions with them. Uh, oh, young boys are... Maybe just go ahead. clarify that just a little bit. Like, what do you mean um, by just the first part, that women are um, adult children, not the second part about dealing okay. with women, adult children? Um. Well, if we're going to negotiate for hostages, who are we going to negotiate for? For the women and children. Why? Uh, because they're of greater reproductive value, maybe? Okay. I Who's don't know. Society? I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> I, I, well, I know, I know why the children. But uh, children can't defend themselves. And women can, can't defend themselves as well as men. Right? So if... If somebody were to, if an adult man went up and shoved your wife, what would you do? Um, yeah, I would handle it. Yeah, you would detonate. Yeah, um, entirely. Or I'd allow, or I would just allow her to do it because she handles my light work and she's trained to. <laughs> well, if a full-grown man pushes her as hard as he can, it could break her neck. So yeah, true. I'm, I'm sure that you would, uh, that you would take action. And I think that it would be much like you would take action if you watch the same thing as a full-grown man walk up and shove a child. Yep. And now, what if a full-grown full man walked up and shoved me? What would you do? 
I would laugh and pull out my phone to start videotaping it. <laughs> right. It's about yeah, it's about to be a beat, a sully beatdown. <laughs> so so this is this is and I don't mean anything derogatory by saying that they're adult children. It just I don't know that we can work with them like in jobs very well. I don't think that the information that we're getting socially says that we can. I I, I really with all the lawsuits and everybody the Me Too and all this kind of stuff and then finding out how many of these things are fake and then they just ruined some guy's life. Well I'm here for the guy's life that got ruined. Man, if you're if you're doing bad things to people, bad things should happen. Um, if you were dumb enough to try to get a movie part to watch some old gross guy take a shower, I don't know if you have any empathy for you. But we have these these massive double standards to uh, to boys and girls, and children throw fits. Right? They can they can throw fits. There's very little consequence. Maybe go to your room. Right, but you're not you're not going to do anything major to him. If a man throws a fit and starts, you know, damaging a car in the front yard, uh, the police are going to show up and have a knee in his back before long. If a woman does the same thing, usually it's just recorded and is good entertainment. And I and I think it's a soft bigotry of lowered expectations that uh, that creates this, but. That's kind of how I perceive women. I mean, I, I don't know how to fight with them. I don't know how to argue with them. I don't know how to be in a relationship with them. Um, the model keeps changing. I didn't alter with the model. I'm never going to be a good woman, and they're never going to be a good man in my head. So um, we, we've got a problem, and because of that, I remain single forever, um, and I'm good with that. But I look at them as a real potential danger, just like children. Like I have to be very cautious with children in the gym and I have to be very cautious with women in the gym and guys. It's funny kind of when they hurt themselves. So it's it completely different standards and methodologies on how things are approached. Yeah. So absolutely. I, see your points for sure. Yeah. And so I just mostly avoid them. Hmm. And I know that sounds weird and it's, and I don't mean that in a sexual way. I, I just avoid them. Well, it certainly is uh, a challenge to take that on for yourself. I mean, I'm speaking from somebody who's married. I mean, it was something voluntary that I knew I was going into, and it was going to alter the way that uh, my lifestyle is going to be and the way that I can, you know, I can't just um, necessarily do all the things that I want to do because, um, yeah, because it's different. You know? you're a, you're, right, I agree. You're a single person now. But there's double standards between the two of you. Yeah, for sure. And there, you know, we try we try to ourselves try and reduce those and, and create equality as best we can, but still, even with our best efforts, society puts that on us anyway when we go out. Um, you know, they still expect certain behaviors and certain certain things to happen. They expect me yep. to hold the door open. If I don't hold the door open and I, I'm joking with my wife and I say, no, you hold the door open this time. Or I say, oh, she's getting the bill, you know, and people give me weird looks. Um, that's because, you know, she and I have a, our own system of how do we um, not only equalize uh, responsibility, but how do we, how do we create this atmosphere where we both feel equally um yeah, those two halves to that one whole individual. 
Yeah, so I, I, I get your plight, and I, I've never felt there needed to be equality in a relationship that I was in. There's, there's definitely different expectations. Like if it's freezing cold out, I shouldn't sit in the house. And this is what I put upon myself. And I put it upon other males too. I shouldn't sit in the house and watch her scrape the ice off her windows. Right? I mean, she shouldn't be out shoveling the ice while I'm, or shoveling snow while I'm in the house. Hmm. Um, heavy lifting, right? That's mine. Burglar in the house. I got that. Uh, I have very old school thoughts in my head about relationships. And, uh, you know, what's interesting about this is this new model of feminism in it is interesting to me because women didn't used to prior to the Victorian era, they didn't used to be stay at home wives prior to that. They were, they had to go to work like everybody else and they had to do hard stuff. So it was in the Victorian era that it seems that we started altering women like, listen, I don't want to go out to the barn anymore. And they started working to stay in the house and, and, and make sure that the house looked a certain way. And that's the way society, they, they, they created their society at that time. Um, and then once they got tired of that, there was this movement of we went out of the house. And I think there's going to be a movement of we went back into the house soon. I, I think that we're going to do a, I, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of women saying, I don't want anything to do with this feminism thing. I want to find somebody that I can just lean on and I can support. And that's the model, Shane, that would work better for me. But not for everybody. Um, I, I think it's going to be an interesting thing as you, as you talk about, you're trying to figure out what your culture is. Um, I'm not confused about my culture mm -hmm. and, and, uh, nobody, uh, nobody fits it anymore. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, um, you know, that's another thing that I really enjoy about you is, uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to say it, but I, I hope you take this in the, in the right way. Um, you definitely have like, um, this old timey sense of like honor and class and you bring it to your martial arts and to how you raise your kids. And, um, you know, it's, it's old, old school values. I think you mentioned the, the old styles and this leads me into something, you know, kind of a segue into a whole different topic. I hope you're okay with that in the last 30 minutes that we have. Um, yeah. And you recently did a podcast or a video about uh, getting serious about training. And I wanted to talk to you about that. Um, I haven't seen the video myself, but it's something that I'm constantly thinking about and battling in my head. Um, you know, the seriousness of training, how serious should I take it? How serious am I taking it? All these things. But how I'm linking this together is, is that uh, you also bring this old school style of training a lot into what you put into your athletes. I can certainly remember um, times in Fusebox way back in the day where, where you would have us holding classic um, like karate style positions like horse stance or something and, and uh, going into our mental spaces while you walk around and like beat our shins and arms with these wooden sticks and things to, you know, build up um, 
not only physical strength, but strength of mind and things like that. And using those old styles of, of conditioning for the mind and the body. Um, can you weave all that together with, with what you're talking about with getting serious with training? So what I did to you guys in those days, um, I wanted to make sure that when you went out to instruct your own classes, because that's what was going to happen. I didn't want it to be this mindless repeat of motions. I wanted there to be some thought behind why we're doing something. And so have you seen like a, like a Kung Fu stance, they have their hands up in the air or something, you know, it's like, you know, yeah. some kind of stance that it wouldn't make sense for today. Some kind of blocking motion. Yeah, they're doing something like, you know, like this, you know, like that. Like this doesn't make sense unless they have a shield in their left hand and they have a hammer or something in the right. Or a spear, I, if, something back here. Yeah. Yeah. So if their hand's doing this, it represents spear. It represents knife. It represents a sword. It represents a hammer, right? So I don't think that those hands were they were actually like, Hey, go hit somebody like this and break your hand. I don't think that's what they're doing. I think that it was the ready active reserve in China, for example, at one time, and they have to go through their, what we call kata motions. So their front line would move at on the same whistle or flag and make a forward motion because if a line breaks on a shield wall, um, that's, that's a significant issue. So, I think a lot of the martial arts were ready active reserve stuff and it got put into civilian use. And so there was some stuff that I weeded out like stances that didn't make sense. Like this stance doesn't make sense. if you don't have an iron helmet on and a shield and a hammer or something. Um, but in the time that they did this, it made sense that they would do that because I ended up doing, when I fought for the ACL, I ended up doing those things exactly the same way. And all of our stuff that we do today didn't work in armor. All right. So um, there's an appropriation of information that I think is incredibly important. And I can't know the future, so I better know the past. And so I try real hard. What's that? This guy talked a lot about appropriating uh, different uh, martial arts to make something more effective and weeding out the, the stuff. This is my favorite picture of Bruce Lee with that mustache. Check him out. He's a badass. <laughs> yeah. Love, love Bruce. Um, and coming from the Ed Parker Kempo system, Bruce Lee had some, uh, some input on that. So, um, I, I probably am not responsible for my own ideas of openness in the martial arts. I'm, I'm sure it was influenced by him. The, uh, the, what I, what I put in there with those old traditional motions, I wanted there to be something more spiritual than just, we're going to kick pads until we all have arthritis. We did that too. We did, yeah, boy. Um, So I've toned the program down a lot since then. Um, I don't know that the people today would be willing to take that program. That program was pretty rough. Um, The, uh, but the idea is to give people a sense of tradition inside of what they're doing so modern ego like present time ego doesn't become the only thing that's being worked here and i think you and i both saw people's egos mine uh, other people's get out of control when we lost that sense of tradition and spirituality that we're basically just governing laws 
that we agreed to kind of follow because when you pull humans off of a leash completely, they tend to do bad things. Not, not evil, just, just not maybe good. So the, uh, the use of the old ways for me, I, I think that the way forward in our, on this planet needs to maybe take a few steps back in time. Uh, I have lights on in this house right now. And normally I don't, and I don't mean to sound creepy, but when it's dark for me, it's dark and I, I leave it that way. So my biological clock can click right. And I retain my ability to, uh, to see at night with night vision as people are starting to lose their night vision because they're never in the dark. Um, so I don't use very much light at night and where I came from in Montana, we just didn't didn't use a lot of light. We were still using gas oil um, lamps uh, for quite some time throughout my youth. Um, and I loved it. I absolutely adored it. And there's something special to it. I don't think that I need a particularly huge amount of technology to survive in this world. So I tend to roll. I had to make a decision, Shane. And this, this goes down to success a little bit, too. Um, I have 25 or so years left. I have to double down on what I know. Now's not a good time for me to change and become something else and go to college and run up $100,000 in debt and try to go out and become something that uh, um, I'm going to die before I get it to take off. So now's the time for me to double down on what I know. And what I know comes from a much earlier time. I always thought I was going to be the cutting edge guy, but uh, I'm really not. Um, what I am is a hold on of the traditions of the past. And I got through a, a hand of fortune or misfortune, however you consider it, taught very old ways by my family. And that comes from woodworking to, um, to living daily life. Right. And like the, the ancient ways, not only of, um, you know, your own heritage, but I think you expose us to the ancient ways and the ancient philosophies of, you know, different warrior classes from samurai to Greek warriors to Roman warriors to uh, ninja, you know, um, teaching us through those kind of old style exercises, um, which I, you know, I don't, I, I've never been to another martial arts school and I've been to a lot. I've never been to another one that embraces those old styles. And I tell you what, from my perspective, it made everything's so much more interesting. Um, I knew that there was benefits happening. I knew that my bones were strengthening every time that you hit that. I knew it was uh, increasing my mental toughness and my ability to stay mindfully in control of my mind. Uh, you know, as somebody kind of, um, you know, wax away at your, at your frame. Um, so I saw the value in it and I definitely, um, you know, now I am an instructor, you know, I teach at Z's, uh, you know, once a week and, and I try and integrate a lot, actually a lot of my style, a lot of my curriculum is uh, directly from the things that you taught us um, in the early fuse box days, um, mental toughness and, you know, sitting down with the team and, and talking about you know, what it really means. What am I really teaching you to do? Uh, what are the applications, not only in the gym or in a sporting context, but on the street? When does this move that I'm teaching you are going to work in the tournament, but definitely, you know, not to try this in a bar with somebody. So um, all those things that you 
brought to my experience, I now get to pass on to others. So yeah, that's, and I think that's, I, I'm really, I love to hear that. And it's, I thank you for that compliment. Um, it's, I think it's important that we be mindful of what we teach people because they're going to believe you. Mm-hmm. And if you violate that trust, it's, it's a significant sin in my mind. And uh, I get so upset with people that teach knife fighting sometimes because what they teach is unlikely that anybody could possibly ever master that. And to uh, allow that one person to think that they're going to defend themselves against a knife attack doing something uh, significantly complex inside of the irrational movement of of a potential killer is irresponsible to me. Um, I, I think that people, as far as the old ways, maybe should take more spirituality or more seriously their role when they say things and they have the power to make people believe them that perhaps if you have an opinion you need to state that it's an opinion and not a fact and and i try to be pretty clear about this stuff is like that's why i said this is an opinion piece right um i don't know the facts to everything that we're talking about i i can only really see how the world bangs off of me and how it bounces off of my children and how i perceive it bangs off of you from how you explain it to me. And I see how people react to me with my older, hard-lined internal rules about how things, I believe they would work better. Um, And I, I think that people should take themselves, if they're gonna take themselves more seriously, they should take themselves their words with the responsibility that the other person may believe them and act upon them. And, and that's a sacred task. I believe. Absolutely. One of the, uh, one of the most, uh, well, it's a Buddhist saying, but I, I actually have a tattooed in Sanskrit right here on my collarbone. And it says, um, enlightenment of body, speech, and mind. And that was one of the major tenets that, um, the Buddha, taught about is having that um having that complete authenticity and truthfulness in everything you say everything you do being completely honorable and not trying to slight anybody not stealing uh, everything you say do and um yeah what was the other one body speech and mind yeah 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 it it it, it's an important task but i think that now we can just say things and not have them held accountable because we live in such large groups of people that you can just, if people don't trust you, you can just transfer yourself to another group. Um, I, I didn't grow up like that in the small village where I came from. I mean, if you, if you ruined the authenticity of your words, they're done. <laughs> I don't even know if you could ever recover. Yeah, I mean, you ostracized yourself, and that's like, that should be a natural consequence of, you know, lying to the group, is that there are consequences. 
instead of just being able to jump ship and, and go find another tribe so easily. Um, right. So getting back to, to my initial question on this, um, uh, getting serious about training. <clears throat> what are the what are the major components about that, and um, what what might you say to someone like myself, who, like I said, I I've struggled throughout my martial arts career um, to either you know put as serious effort as I feel I should into my martial arts, or to back off and and kind of say you know I'm taking myself way too seriously. I just need to have fun here. Um, what, what are your thoughts? You've been doing this a lot longer than I have. So in, there's a Greek saying, and I'm, I'm probably going to botch this a little bit, but it's, uh, I use it regularly and I probably botch it regularly. Out of a hundred men, 10 should not be there. In the army, 10 are just targets. 80 make the army. We're glad to have them. We wouldn't have an army without them. Nine are fighters. And we couldn't do this without those nine fighters. But one is a warrior. And I've had people say to me, even recently, I bet you would be the warrior coach. And my response is, when I was born, for many years, I was one of the 10 that shouldn't be there. And then by the grace of God or whatever, I grew into the 80 that made the army. And then with any luck, I grew into a fighter. And if I could survive that, maybe for a short period of time in my early 20s, I became a warrior. And then I aged back down to becoming a fighter and then back into the 80. And then I turned probably, I haven't gone back there yet, but I'll be there before long where I'm back into that 10% that shouldn't be there. So taking it seriously comes down to a very finite time period you have in your life. I keep mentioning to you that I have 25 years left because I believe that's what I have. And I'm okay with those numbers. But a person that walks in the gym at 17, 18, 19 years old feels like they have an eternity, and they don't. They don't even heal properly after 21. So you have this short period of time that you need to learn all the information you can without getting seriously hurt so you can have the expertise when your body matures to its peak performance level, which is well after 21, when you're closer to 27. Now, inside of there with different people's maturity levels, what are we going to do to get enough information in without boring them to where they hear whispers in their ear from other people telling them that they have a shortcut to success without losing those potential warriors? So we have had people come into the gym well past their prime talking about wanting to become warriors and it, it's difficult to look at a 35 year old man and say okay you're going to be a warrior um you can be a fighter but his prime is done it's going to take me too long to get the information in do you agree with that yeah but um on one sense like warriorship is not just 
one's physical ability. I mean, that's definitely a big part. One's current physical ability and level of training and level of cardio in order to enact your will over someone else is a part of being a warrior. But I believe that, you know, once you find the philosophy and adopt the warrior philosophy into your own life, I mean, once a, not once a warrior, always a warrior, because people certainly can go backwards and go back into old behaviors. But for me, anyway, I feel like I've adopted a warrior philosophy, and I may not ever be some champion fighter or some gladiator, uh, but I feel truly in my heart that I am a warrior and that I take those ideals and those virtues uh, into my everyday interactions into my quality of my research the quality of my work into the you know the work ethic that i put towards school and relationships and all that stuff is components of being a warrior um, but i you know i see your point too that um you know warriorship does have this component of uh physical tactical readiness and ability when, when i'm talking about warrior i'm talking about warriors in my head are looking for a problem I'm not a warrior. Um, somebody, you know, somebody else told me one time, he goes, well, man, if you were back in the Viking day, you'd be a crazy warrior. I'm like, I don't think so. Um, warriors are looking for an issue, and I don't see my personality floating across the ocean and doing that to people. So, um, What about a warrior ship, monk? I'd be a good ship builder. Yeah. I'd be good, I don't know if you should go into the shipyard picking shit with people, but uh, if you did it in a modern shipyard, you'd get beat up pretty bad. Um, these are rough people, but they're, they're not overly focused on the warrior part and neither am I now at this age, but I'm incapable of being one if I'm pressed. But what I'm talking about is making somebody taking training seriously and making somebody cage or ring ready. Mm. And they come in at 35 years old, delusional about their age. So we're not going to make you, we're not going to get you into the UFC most likely unless it, there's the stroke of just physical luck. But you can do some pretty amazing things that you couldn't have done otherwise. If you take it seriously, if you train intelligently, if you allow your body to heal, if you don't abuse yourself. You know, there's, there's so many things to this. And what I find that most people are really looking for is – the, the instant gratification from a low-level sense of praising from friends or individuals around them versus the actual journey of the fighter. So people are seeking more, yeah, like you said, the, the accolades from others, taking like this outward approach for validation rather than being validated by the experience itself, the struggle, the challenge, and the overcoming of the struggle and what that feels like. But that's what also what uh, conceptualizes, you know, a warrior is that the warrior's in it for the experience, not for the glory um, per se, even though some warriors over time have been in it for the glory. Yeah. Um, I, I find that a lot of actual um, fighters are glory hounds and something's got to drive. I'm an egotistical lifter, Shane. I, I lift for, for ego. I'm not, I'm not trying to set a world record. I just don't want to hate what I see when I get out of the shower. And whatever drives an individual is fine with me. 
Um, but why would you want to put yourself through the rigors of becoming an actual fighter, an actual warrior, when you already have established friend group that is a group of incredibly successful low achievers when you could just train and do a two, three fights at a, at a bar and become a local hero inside of that group. Right. You could get, you can get lost in your own mind. Um, thinking that something happened that didn't happen, that you, that you became a celebrity in your own mind amongst these people. And you get introduced at the bar, right? As a fighter. And the guy's a fighter. And then other drunks are like, wow, he's a fighter. You know, and then everybody, it's, and that's where I lose most people. So when we're talking about taking fighting seriously, we're talking about a very deep lifestyle. Like you can't, you can't be, get me, correct me if I'm wrong. You don't become a doctor on an hour, three hours a week, right? No, 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 no. It, it, consu- right. it consumes almost every free second of my life. If that Correct. exists anymore. Right. So to become a professional fighter, to make it to the highest levels of warriorism in modern, the modern gladiatorial arena, it's going to require no less def- dedication. Do you agree? I agree. That's where we lose them, right there. How many people become doctors? <laughs> not very many. About the same amount of people become fighters, maybe. <laughs> it's not. It's not easy, right? There's easier ways. I I I break it down like this: the unsuccessful fail less than the very successful people. The unsuccessful only fail one time. And there's a name for the time that they fail, and it's called life. They're just failing at life in order to have this perception of safety or this perception of security or this perception of acceptance. As where the successful, however you define that, oftentimes have taken great leaps and jumped from the nest and had to learn to fly. Most people won't do this. And I can't talk them into it. If they don't come wired like that, I can't talk them into it. Yeah. Um, well, at least, you know, you're doing your part to, to share with people and at least help other people examine themselves and their own expectations and put things into perspective. I really appreciate that. Um, so one last thing, though, before I, I let you go, and I want to thank you again for coming on the show today. It's been awesome. We've traversed a lot of topics, and I think um, I think the listeners are, are getting just as much out of this as I am personally. I'm getting a lot out of this. I always love our conversations. Um, but that is that uh, you mentioned the AC, uh, what is it, the ACL, the Arm, Armored Combat League. Um, yes. So this is, this is something um, that a lot of people don't know about, but you uh you were a participant in uh you know getting in all the armor all the traditional armor and going to battle uh with others who are willing participants uh, i bring that up only because you you mentioned it earlier and because Callie and i just went to a wedding down in florida and the groom's uh the groom was uh also an armored combat uh fighter 
uh, takes it extremely seriously. Uh, we got to sleep on his couch, and I'm sleeping on his couch in, in his living room, and I'm surrounded by all these uh, Viking uh, axes and swords and, and things hung up on the wall, and it's really cool. I felt I felt, really felt that vibe in there. And uh, But he had, you know, all his groomsmen were, were of his clan, and they all compete in, in the arm armored combat league. And I didn't know, I wanted to ask you, you know, how big is that league? Is it possible that, that you could have run into them maybe at one of your competitions? I know that a lot of people don't know that these things happen. I think when, when they hear about it, they think of LARPing and going out there and, and uh, hitting each other with like rubber swords. But no, this is, this is live action, um, heavy metal, uh, metal on metal. And, you know, it's hard work. Yeah, so, yeah, I don't know if I would have ran across him or not. Um, I've competed in Colorado and California, and I was really in it just to kind of see what those men would have experienced in those days of fighting that way. And uh, it taught me a lot about history and the way people perceive these ancient injuries that they, uh, they pull from bone structures that we find in the ground. Um, I, I think archaeologists have... Uh, have a lot of their a little bit of like fantasism in the way that these injuries occurred. And it's okay. We can see that the injuries to the skull, for example, occurred, but um, archaeologists are saying that maybe it was a swing upward that did it. And I'm telling you right now, nobody swings up in armor. You're, you're in a hurry and there's, there's too much vulnerability to dropping your hand. So everything's kind of stays up like this and um Everything slaps down. So if a, if there was an impact in a head that went up like this, it means that the person fell forward and somebody hit him on the way down. Um, the, uh, but an archaeologist wouldn't know that because they probably hadn't put on the armor and <laughs> been exposed to the limitations of our of our body. So it was it was an amazing um, time. Um, I, I I personally wouldn't want to get lost in it. It's uh, it's expensive, and um, I. Uh, I find it incredibly valuable um, the time that I spent with those guys and I like them met a lot of really cool people and, um, but it's definitely not LARPing. It's, it's pretty, I mean, I got knocked out a couple of times. I mean, is that, that should count. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it seems brutal and I can't even imagine. I mean, I know what it feels like to be in um, fighting shape for like an MMA fight or a jujitsu match um, where I'm not wearing any armor, but put on, you know, however many, if it's if it's upwards of a hundred or more pounds of armor and try and move with that too, uh, I mean I was asking this guy this guy uh, the groom he was huge he was like six four six five I hope to have him on the show soon soon but I asked yeah, him I said right. yeah I asked him I was like uh, you must be in in good shape to wear this armor um, he says yeah pretty good shape I was like yeah but could you run a mile in it and he says oh yeah easy and I was like holy shit man this guy really must be I mean to be able to carry as much body weight as he carries and uh, armor on top of that and to be able to run a mile with ease, um, that's got to be an entirely different level of stress on the body and, and adaptation. No, what that is is a, is a podcast of its own, putting the cameras on this guy and watching him run a mile in armor. That, yeah. <laughs> I want to see it. I want to see it. Mm -hmm. um, the the armor is not that hard to move in. And it's the only, my armor only weighed about 97 pounds. And, uh, um, I had a very heavy helmet. Um, cause I, uh, the guy that made my helmet um, out of the uh, wolf pack, um, he just wanted to give me kind of a juggernaut helmet so I can take hits without getting knocked over. 
And so he gave me like, I, my helmet weighed 15 pounds, I think. And so I could basically take a hit and you have to hit at least hard enough to knock something that weighed 15 pounds off of a shelf to get to my neck muscles, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to take some pretty dang good hits and, and run in and have some fun, man. It was, it was definitely a blast, but it, it takes a lot of money. Just, I don't know if that guy's doing well financially, but you, you kind of have to, to uh, afford to travel and all the armor because your armor is only good for so many times. And uh, the injuries when they happen are pretty, I got, I got hurt for about a year out of one fight. So it's when they happen, they happen pretty, pretty extensively. Pretty drastically. Yeah. Yeah. Right. He got hit with an ax. Right. So. <laughs> right. All right. Sully. Well, I want to um, thank you again for coming on the show. Uh, it's always a pleasure and um, hope to be on your show soon. That'd be really cool. And uh, yeah, I'd like to that in person. Yeah, so tell tell uh, the audience just real quick um, what name of your podcast is, how they can reach out to you if they want to know more about Fusebox, uh, more about um, the podcast, other things like that. Hey, so um, my podcast is the Viking of Valhalla Project podcast, and the Viking of Valhalla Project itself is kind of a male-centric organization that works with helping men kind of navigate this modern era of change that we're talking about. Um, This organization kind of pushes people to really develop the strength in themselves to accomplish what they're trying to get accomplished in life. But we do it with a lot of the old ways. And while keeping one eye on the past, we try to keep one eye on the future to use modern Vikingism, which is we, we can't go out and conquer villages or anything of that nature anymore. And so we're looking into internet space and business and um, charity events and things of that nature that we use for uh, that energy for. Um, the, the podcast itself is going to range on a couple of different topics of fighting from the Fusebox facility. Um, it's actually not called Fusebox anymore. It's called Samba One. Mm-hmm. Um, from the Sambal One facility and what it looks like to become a Sambal athlete, a jiu-jitsu athlete, a submission grappling athlete, to what it takes to just get in better shape and uh, be more impressive to your wife. And that, I think that's, that's a worthy goal in itself is to remain interesting to your spouse. So if anybody wants to contact me, um, I can be texted directly at 720-207-3860. And I can be found at uh, fusebox.com. I retained the old name, even though we changed the gym name, because it's more known. And that's F-U-S-B-O-X-E.com. And uh, you can reach out to me either way. And my name's Michael Sullivan. You can find me on uh, Instagram. You can find me on Facebook. I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. So, um if there's anything I can do for anybody and Shane, uh, I'd love to have you on to the show and we can kind of pick through and uh, kind of talk about the old days. Cause you were a very aspiring athlete. And if it wasn't for your knees going out, I think you would have gone uh, all the way. I would love that. And I uh, would love to talk about that too. Cause believe me, um, I mean, and you know this from being a fighter too. Um, you know, I, I can't help but uh, reminisce on the what ifs if, if, uh, you know, the knee stuff hadn't have happened to me back in 2007 or whatever. So we'd love to talk about uh, what you saw as my potential. And, and um, I learn from me every time, man. Thank you for, for coming on. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you.
Wow. How do you guys feel after that one? That one shook me in so many good ways. Um, I think Sully and I had some great conversations and some really interesting like uh, similarities in how we think, but also I'm no- I noticed quite a few like um, differences, not like stark opposite end differences, but some differences in how we think for sure. And uh, that just drew me in even more. It made me more fascinated with, with getting his perspective. So I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation. It was a great one for me. I learned a ton. And, you know, it was, it's conversations like this one in particular that that I like the most because I come away having noticed and felt directly uh, my mental processes changing during the course of the conversation. Um, I think after after every time I talk to someone like Sully, some belief of mine gets challenged and changed in some way, and I love that. It feels great. It used to be scary, but it, it really feels good now to just feel that growth every time I have conversations with people like him. So thank you, Sully, uh, for being on the show. Guys, go check out um, fusebox.com, F-U-S-B-O-X-E.com. That's his uh, website. Check out Sambo One. That's his martial arts gym in Westminster, Colorado. Uh, Check out his uh, podcast, the Viking in Valhalla podcast. Uh, Check that out. And if you need to reach him, um, reach out to him at his email address. I have provided it in the description. Also, if you need to reach out to me, go to our website, mindops.com that's m-i-n-d hyphen o-p-s.com there's a comment section there go ahead and leave us a comment there let us know what you like about the show what you don't like about the show what's working what's not this show is as much yours as it is mine so let's collaborate a little a little bit um but i need your guys help i need your uh information your feedback positive or negative it's all welcome also, please like and share uh, on social media, and if you find any value in this whatsoever, please consider donating, even if it's a dollar, to the podcast. It all makes a uh, difference and goes straight back to you, the listeners, through upgrades in our systems and getting new, um, better guests on. So, uh, yeah, check out our YouTube page, uh, mindops.com, M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S is also the YouTube page. All right, folks. Until next time, take care of each other and keep on questioning your values because the more you do that, I tell you what, you're going to grow in so many ways and in the end, it's all going to be worth it. Until next time, this is Shane. Bye-bye. Conversations with the Mind podcast is sponsored by mindops.com. You can find us at www.mind-ops.com. We're an eclectic counseling company providing mental health and mental performance services to individuals, small and large groups, teams, businesses, military, through face-to-face sessions or at a distance using phone or confidential video chat apps. We bring a unique Buddhist Western lens and specialize in general psychotherapy for all mental difficulties, sport and performance psychology for performance enhancement, addiction counseling for any maladaptive or destructive habits, and psychedelic integration therapy to make the most from your visionary medicine work. We are available as well for corporate workshops to address the needs of your employees' wellness. And now to the good news story. Mm-hmm.